Hello. Um, my name is Derwin Gray, and uh, I want to say thank you to the Austin Stone family and all your campuses for, for welcoming me home. I'm from San Antonio, Texas, so it feels, yes, it feels, it feels good um, to be back home, and I especially want to thank uh, uh, your, your, your pastor, uh, Matt, for allowing me to come. We connected on a Trinity Broadcasting Network. Our friend Ed Stetzer was hosting, and so uh, we developed a friendship. He catches birds with his hands, and I catch catfish. But brothers don't use their hands, though. We, we, we use fishing poles. So, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just thrilled and excited to be here. You guys ready? All right, let's get started. Okay, so check this out. All of us are influenced by labels. We're all influenced by labels. Like for some of us, um, the labels that influence us are labels on clothes. For example, we will buy certain kinds of clothes because those clothes will give us a label. Um, I tried to grow a beard. No one noticed in three weeks. Because, you know, that's kind of the thing now to grow a beard and that label didn't work for me. So I shaved it and nobody noticed. Um, labels like what university you choose, what, what job you choose, because these labels give us a identity. Some of us buy certain types of smartphones based on the labels. For some of you, it's iPhone. For the more technologically advanced among us, it's Androids. Okay, that's my idolatry. I, I repent. But I want to talk about the labels that we cannot see, but the labels that impact how we view and experience God, how we view and experience ourselves, and how we view and experience the people we're in relationship with, the jobs we pursue, the relationships we pursue, how it impacts everything. Many of us, all of us, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, have a label called orphan. Many of us have a life-destroying label called orphan. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're, you're like, hey, uh, preacher dude from San Antonio, like I had my parents. Or maybe you're thinking like, you know what? Orphan is when someone leaves America and they go to another country and they adopt a child and bring them back. And that's a beautiful picture of Jesus because he left his home called heaven and he came to a foreign country called earth. He didn't sell across the sea or fly across the sea. He transcended time and space to adopt us into God's family. But I'm talking about at the level of being a spiritual orphan. Let me give you an illustration. I wrote a blog not too long ago, and someone responded back to my blog. This is what it said. It said, enough, big exclamation point. I've been quiet about this topic long enough. I cannot, nor will I hold it in anymore. So at that point, I figured out they didn't like my blog very much. The rest of it went like this. It says, when people like you, that's me, when people like you call God Papa or Daddy, that can be extremely hurtful for people who've experienced abuse at the hands of the Father. So in the future, when you use the word Papa or Daddy for God, just know that it can cause hurt. And then they responded with the words anonymous, which in a moment you'll see 
is so fitting because when you don't have a true father, a true papa to love you unconditionally, to give you an identity, to empower you for a mission and a purpose, you feel anonymous. And we look for an identity in people and places and possessions. So I wrote back and I responded this way. I said, dear anonymous, I have some father wounds too. So I feel what you're saying, I really do. And then I wrote, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as in Paul's letters, Jesus and Paul both use the Aramaic word Abba to describe God the Father. The word Abba is equivalent to the English word Papa or Daddy. And almost the word picture is of a father reaching down for their child to lift them up and embrace them close to their chest. Let me pause here. Um, I'm 43. My daughter just graduated high school. She's going to Clemson next year. I'm freak. I'm freaking out right now, other than wanting to tackle whoever that was. I can still move like a puma now. Don't let 43 fool you. I can still move. Okay, so like I'm freaking out as a dad. Now, you don't, those of you that are in high school and, and, and you're young and you think your parents are controlling and they won't give you space, we are freaking out. I remember when she was born. When my wife was six months pregnant, I wanted a boy because that's what dudes do. We want boys. We're morons. And God gave me a picture, an image of this beautiful face with these brown eyes. And I fell in love with that girl. And when she came out, I was like, that's her. That's the one I see. Like from day one, she had me. Man, I changed her diaper. I taught her how to ride a bike. And I remember when she was little. And you know, when they're learning how to first walk and she walks up to me and she's walking and she puts her arms up and she goes, Boppy. If you haven't noticed, I'm not Hispanic. <laughs> now, my wife is white, so my kids do look like Puerto Rican or Hawaiian or anything. They, they look like a lot of things. But anyway, she would, she would, she would, she would go, she would go, Boppy. And I would go, ah, mija. And I would just <laughs> pick her up and... <laughs> I am from San Antonio, y'all. Um, but here's the point, though. I would pick her up, and of course, at 18, you know, she thinks I'm kind of goofy now, but when she gets older, she'll realize I'm really cool and I was smart. But man, I, I would hold her and just, man, this is my daughter. I mean, the love that I have for her, it's immense. But if a broken, busted up from the toe up dude like me can love like that, imagine what a gloriously perfect father can love like. So I finished my response to the Anonymous's blog and I said, Anonymous, I cannot and I will not allow the pain of my past to destroy the happiness I experienced today as knowing God as my papa. You see, as orphans, and, and, and I took this from my own life, and this is one page in my book, Limitless Life. This is in chapter four, and it's a page. And so this is kind of what I processed through in over 12 years of counseling. These are some of the spiritual orphan wounds, some characteristics. Maybe you can relate. You know, orphans feel anonymous. They, 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 don't, they don't know who they are. 
My dad took off when I was about six. I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. Um, I grew up in the raggediest house on Arbor Street on the west side. You know your house is the worst when it's the worst on Arbor Street on the west side. And so I had to find an identity by what I did. I got good at football. I'll share more about that. But I was always anonymous. Who am I? Where am I from? You see, with my son, I'm able to cup his face and tell him who he is in Christ. Orphans feel abandoned. At about age 13, and this isn't negative, this is just what it is. At about age 13, I recognized that people close to me would let me down. They would hurt me. So at age 13, I said, you know what? I'm going to keep everybody at a distance, and no one is going to hurt Derwin Gray ever again. No one is ever going to hurt me again. I'm not even going to let you close enough to hurt me. By the way, that's a sad way to live. Matter of fact, some of you right now are sabotaging your relationships and it's not anybody's fault. It's your fault for living in the pain of your past. If you don't let Jesus deal with your past pain, your past pain will jack up your present relationships. And then finally, you feel afraid. Uh, I played in the NFL for several years, but there was always this fear of who am I going to be when I can't do what I once did to give me an identity. Everybody's just going to abandon me. I have the privilege and honor of being the founding and lead pastor of a church called Transformation Church. In our first year, we were the second fastest growing church in the United States of America. Uh, we've grown from about 170 to 2,504 years. We're building a brand new $6 million building, have a campus in a prison, planted a church in Spain, have another campus in Rock Hill, and every weekend when I get up to the pulpit, there's a voice that says, well, they're just going to leave you too. Let me read you something. It's by a pastor by the name of Jack Frost. I don't make that up. That's his real name. (laughs) That brother's cool, I bet. Being a spiritual orphan causes us to live life as if we don't have a safe and secure place in the Father's heart. We feel we have no place of affirmation, protection, comfort, belonging, or affection. Self-oriented, lonely, and inwardly isolated, we have no one from whom to draw godly inheritance. Therefore, we have to strive, achieve, compete, and earn everything we get in life. This easily leads to a life of anxiety, fears, and frustration. Maybe you can relate. Whether if you're a follower of Jesus or whether if you are exploring who Jesus is, maybe you can relate. So you know what? It's now time for us to have a new label. It's time for us to be adopted. Now, I do this at Transformation Church. I'm going to see if y'all can groove with me. On the count of three, I want you to say adopted. Now, listen. You got to say it with some flavor, though. Don't be like adopted. Be like adopted. Y'all ready? One, two, three. That was smooth like jazz. So, grew up on the west side of San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Dad was gone by the time I was six. My mom was 17 when she had me. She had some issues and some deep father wounds. And so my grandmother primarily raised me. At age 13, I'm like, no one's going to hurt me. And we were not a religious family. We never prayed together. We never attended any services. I think we were kind of Jehovah Witness, but not really. And, And so at the age of 13, I found religion. And from the state of Texas, you know what religion is. It's called football. 
in eighth grade, my middle school coach said, hey, Derwin, if you keep playing good, you can get a scholarship. I was like, what kind of ship is a scholarship? Where does that take you? No, he goes, no, 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 son. There are colleges that will pay your education and you get to play football. At that moment, I got a God. A God is anything that gives you an identity, gives you significance, and gives you a mission. Well, football gave me identity. I'm a football player. It gave me significance. I could be good. It gave me a mission. I'm going to college, and I worship football. No one outworked me. Went to a high school called Converse Judson. Perhaps you've heard of it. We've known to kick butt for eons. Played for a great high school coach by the name of D.W. Rutledge. We played Dallas Carter in the state championship in 1988. Odessa Permian did not. Friday Night Lights is a lie. I played in the game. Anyway, moving on, moving on, moving on. So at the end of my career, I, I, I basically have two primary offers. TCU, Texas Christian University, you know about the horns, right? And Brigham Young University. Guess where I went? BYU. The brother went to BYU. Now, being from San Antonio, growing up in a multi-ethnic context, I go to Provo, Utah. Not only was it white, but it was a Mormon whiteness, which is a different kind of whiteness. Now, in saying that, going to BYU was a great thing for me. Uh, because it is hard to get in trouble in Provo, Utah. Ain't no 6th Street in Provo, Utah. Don't, they don't sell alcohol in Provo, Utah. Like you have to plan and strategize to get in trouble in Provo, Utah. It is hard. I was successful. But it's hard. January 15, 1990. I'm in a weight room and I see this young lady doing triceps extensions. I was like, dang, I need to go meet her. Her name was Vicky. She was a javelin thrower on the track team. And we've been together ever since. We're celebrating 22 years of marriage. So I got married in college. My football career is going good. Nominated as one of the greatest players ever played at BYU. I get married in college, worshiping my gods, going great. April 25th, 1993, I get drafted by the Colts. I was the 92nd pick in the entire draft. Boom, I make it to my football mecca to worship my God. First year is a little tough. Second year gets better. Third year, I'm a team captain, making some money, almost made it to the Super Bowl. People want my autograph. But yet when I look in the mirror, I'm saying, I hope people really don't know what's happening on the inside of me. I had like a midlife crisis at 25. I'm like, okay, so this is it. Uh, I make some money. I can go on vacations. I got the Lexus with the chrome rims chopping up the block. By the way, if you don't know what that means, ask somebody under 30. Um, you know, I was able to send money home to my family in Texas because I thought if you sent money home, that would fix all the problems, but it made it worse. Never take away someone's dignity by not allowing them to work. You're not helping people. I thought giving handouts would help, but only a hand up helps. 
um, some of the crisis points was I couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. Like, I took a man's daughter and said, I'm going to take those responsibilities. But after three years of marriage, I went, no matter how hard I try, I can't love her the way she deserved to be loved. And that crushed me. And now to have a daughter, it terrifies me to a certain degree that she could meet somebody like me who says, yeah, I love you. But yet when they reach into the resources to try to garner that love, it's not there. I needed a love beyond myself. By the way, how could I love my wife when I didn't even love me, when I didn't even know what love was? I dealt with bitterness. Can you imagine having a son that's a team captain in the NFL and never going to any games that you let your addiction get so bad that you don't participate in your son's career? Like I go to all of my son and daughter's events most, most part. I'm at my son's practices. I just want him to know that I'm there. Like I cannot imagine not being intimately involved in my son's life. In high school, I would work out and do extra reps and extra sprints so that I could show my dad I could make it without him. And people go, yeah, Derwin, you really made it. No, I didn't. I was bitter. And you know what bitterness is? Bitterness is drinking poison and hoping that the person that you're mad at dies. And you know who dies? I did. Never forget this. Hurt people hurt people. I live with fear. Now, my fear was not of other football players except for Jerry Rice and Barry Sanders. Other than that, I was cool. But you know what I was really afraid of? I was afraid of the guy who worked in the front office who could come to me with a pink slip and say, you can't play anymore. You're fired. You know why that gave me fear? Because my identity was built on what I did. Now, here's the problem. What happens when you and I can't do what we do that gave us an identity? You go into identity crisis. So let me back up. 1993, when I was drafted by the Colts, there was a guy on the team. He was a linebacker, 6'2", 240 pounds, black dude from Miami, Florida. Every day after practice, he would take a shower. That's normal for the most part. Then he would wrap a towel around his waist, normal. Then he would get his Bible and walk through the locker room, not normal, not normal. So picture this, six foot two, 240 pounds, black dude with one gold tooth, white towel around his waist, walking in the locker room like this. I don't make this up, that's the way he walked. And then he would go. Then he would go to my teammates, I would observe this, and he would go to my teammates and he would say, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And in my mind, I'm going, do you know you're half naked? (laughs) It was the weirdest thing ever. Remember, I had no Christian background. I'm like, I don't want to know Jesus, and I don't want to know you because you're like naked. (laughs) So one day, I'm chilling at my locker. I'm marinating, right? And I hear, and I turn around, and six foot two, 240 pounds of dark chocolate near nakedness is coming towards me. I'm like, oh no, my heart, I'm like, oh, here comes one of these religious nuts and oh, this dude, no way, no way. So I turn, I turn and I feel this on my back. 
Then he asked me a question that forever changed my life. He said, uh, Rookie D. Gray, do you know Jesus? Now, I knew that was a religious question, so I said, well, I'm a good person. And he said, do you know Jesus? Let me pause here. One of the most arrogant things another human being can say is, I'm a good person. Here's a question. How did I come to the conclusion that I was a good person unless I looked at other people and said, I'm better than you? And didn't Jesus say something about Matthew chapter 7, like, don't judge hypocritically? I was looking at other people to lift myself up and to put them down by saying, I'm a good person. If you're a follower of Jesus, we should be the most humble, compassionate people on the face of the earth because we understand grace that at the foot of the cross, all of us are sinners in need of God's grace. If you're a follower of Jesus, the only time we should ever look down upon somebody is when we are extending a hand to lift them up. So, there we go. Appreciate the golf clap. There we go. <laughs> And, and, and so we begin this dialogue, this five-year conversation. August 2nd, 1997, it's after lunchtime. I'm walking back to the dorm room, fifth year in the NFL, training camp, Anderson, Indiana, Anderson College. I'm walking back to the dorm room, and there's something happening on the inside of me that I really can't explain, but I get back to my dorm room, I pick up the phone, and I call my wife, and I say, sweetheart, I want to be more committed to you. I was ready to grow up. I was ready to be a man. And then I said these next words, and I want to be committed to Jesus. She got quiet. I got quiet. And the only thing I can do, explain to you what happened. At that moment, I knew for the first time in my life that I was loved. I'm going to preach for a minute because this really excites my heart about his wondrous grace. Can I do that for a second? It hit me that for the first time in my life that I was loved with no strings attached. It wasn't because I was fast. It wasn't because I was strong. It wasn't because somebody looked at my film resume like, oh, this dude can really help our team. No, no, it was contrary to that. God looked at my film resume, resume and it said, sinner in need of grace, and he gave me grace. He gave me himself. I knew that God loved me, that on the cross, all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my brokenness was nailed to Christ and all of his forgiveness, mercy and love and wholeness was nailed to me as the spirit of God sealed me and filled me. And it was independent of what I did, but dependent upon everything that Jesus did. You see, what I'm talking about is that God gives us his adopting love. God gives us his adopting love. Ephesians 1.5 says this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I, I want you to marinate with me for a moment because many of you, like me, you find your self-worth and your purpose based on what you do, and we've failed so much, we feel that we are, quote-unquote, worthless. A gentleman by the name of Willie Nelson, he's a philosopher. <laughs> he really philosophizes when he smokes herb. 
Uh, he, he sung a song. Uh, it wasn't new to him, but he took it. It was called, And You're Always on My Mind. And it was a love song. That's a lie. There's only one being in the universe who can say, you've always been on my mind. And that being is the Father, Son, and Spirit. When we go back to when there is no days, no time, no space, no matter, we go back and we step into the eternal now, what do we find? We find the Father, Son, Holy Spirit adoring and loving one another, and you are on the Father, the Son, the Spirit's mind. You see, God is most glorified when people respond to his grace and partake in the ultimate love fest. God has never not thought about you with good intentions to offer his life and love to you. Do you know what that means that God decided in advance? It means that before your mama and daddy was up in the club and then they know each other, and your dad was like, boom, I like her. God loved you. Before Christopher Columbus sailed across America to find that people were already here in America, God loved you. And it's a love that is a transforming love. But not only that, through Christ, it says that it brought him pleasure to do that. It brought him pleasure. For some of you, you don't think that God even likes you. Okay, pastor, yeah, he loves me. I heard that. He loves me. He loves me. But does he really like me? And here's your problem. And here's my problem. We think that God's love and like for us is based on what we do. Let's settle this right now in Christ. If you and I could do anything to make God love us or like us any more than he does now, that diminishes beautiful and glorious Jesus. And we don't want to do that. You see, he loves us based on everything that Christ has done. And by our association to him, the Father's feelings that overflow to Jesus overflow on you and I because we are in him. And he takes pleasure. When my kids were little, um, and they don't let me do this no more. But when they would go to bed, I would sing to them. And I don't have the gift of singing. But I would hold them and they couldn't escape. And I would just hold them and I would sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And man, tears would just flow. I mean, these poor kids needed a windshield wiper because (laughs) tears were just falling on them. And I took pleasure in loving them. And when I looked at them, I didn't go, I love you because one day you're going to get a job and take care of me when I'm old and decrepit. I love you because you're going to get a football scholarship or a cheerleading scholarship. I love you because of what you're going to do. I love you. No, I love you just because you are you. I love you based on your intrinsic value of being mine. That's the way the Father loves you in Christ. Zephaniah 3, 17 is a passive scripture that's applied to the nation of Israel, which then gets transferred to Jesus And because we're in Christ, it transfers us. And it says that God sings and dances over us. Have you thought about that? That God the Father sings and dances over you because you're in Christ? That if he had a body, he's like pop locking? (laughs) Or if you do two-step, I don't know what y'all do down here. I don't know how y'all do it. But God the Father sings and dances over you. Can you imagine waking up every morning to that? Instead of waking up going... Okay, people are going to like me. People are going to love me based on what I do. Instead of going, I'm resting in the adopting love of Jesus. 
God gives us daughtership and sonship. Listen to Romans 8.15. It reads this way. So you have not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Let me pause here. Let me talk to the dudes. What are you afraid of? Now, listen, I know you're afraid of something. I don't care if you got a big beard. <laughs> Ladies, what are you afraid of? Are you tired of being afraid? Can I give you some good news? Do you know who your daddy is? Let me get San Antonio, Texas on you for a minute. You know who your daddy is? <laughs> Let me tell you about your daddy. Your daddy flung the Milky Way galaxy into existence with a word. Your daddy in Christ conquered sin and death. Your daddy is the one who tells the son to wake up and smile. Your daddy is the sovereign king of the universe, that there is not an atom floating randomly that is not first in his hand. Do you know who your daddy is? Whatever you're fearful of, when it knocks on your door, tell your daddy to go answer it. He got this. I haven't been a Christian long enough to know that you're not supposed to be transparent, so here you go. You know what I'm afraid of? Um, People will say things to me at Transformation Church, you know, Christians, not the non-Christians, but the Christians. You know, Pastor, we just want you to stay humble now because, you know, the church is growing and you're getting national and worldwide influence, so stay humble. And I'm like, dude, I played in the NFL. I've been on TV since I was 17. Like, I've made money. My issue is not humility. You know what my issue is? I don't know if I'm the one that can lead Transformation Church to where it wants to go. I wake up and I go, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I wake up and I go, God, it's hard for me to connect with my daughter sometimes. God, Daddy, you got to do it through me, Dad. Dad, you've got to show up. Dad, if you parted the Red Sea, you can get us into the $6 million building. Hey, God, you can do it because I can't. That's my fear. And that presses me into a papa that's big. Have you thought about pressing into your papa who is big? Then it goes on. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. A lot of you are young and and you're moving forward in your careers and, and all this stuff. But please hear me. Please, please, please. Idols can become anything Everything that you and I have can be stripped away. As much as I love my wife, she could go crazy and be like, peace, I'm out. As much as I love my children, they can go, dad, we don't love you. As much as I love Transformation Church, they could go, dude, we are so firing you. As you know, I'm 43, I've got arthritis and all kinds of stuff from uh, problems from my NFL career. My body can break down. Everything can be stripped away from me but this. Derwin, you are an infinitely beloved son of God. So you know what that means? I don't have to live life like this. Why? Because my daddy is generous. You're a beloved daughter of the king. You're a beloved son of the king. Finally, God's adopting love as his child gives us friendship with God. Look at Romans 5, 8 through 11. 
But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, let me say it again. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, that would be a point where we should lose our everlasting minds. Did y'all hear that? You are made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. Hey, ladies, it's hard being a woman in this culture. You got to compete with airbrush magazine covers. By the way, why do you torture yourself like that? They don't even look like that. Ladies, why don't you try this? If you're in Christ, I want you to wake up one morning and go to the mirror with no makeup on and be like, hey. (laughs) I am right in God's sight because of the blood of Christ. Hey, fellas, your past no longer has to torture you because when you remind God of it, he said, what you talking about? You made right, you made right in, the, in my sight by the blood of my son. He will certainly save us from God's condemnation for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still enemies, we shall certainly be saved through the life of his son so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Through Christ, we're actually friends of God. So now what? So now what? 2001, 2002, I was writing some letters telling my families about my newfound faith and how forgiving God is. And I heard a voice. I don't know if it's God's voice or my voice. And the voice said this, find your father. I stood up in my office and started cursing like a drunken sailor. Like, why should I find my father? Like, I'm good now. I'm a grown man. I've had a career. I got a family. What do I need to find him for? When I was growing up and, and, and I didn't know how to treat women, where was he? When I was at my games and the other dads were there, where was he? Why should I find him? And I'm like, God, I remember in eighth grade when he showed up to a basketball game one time, he was high out of his mind and he put his hand up against the wall in the locker room and heroin tracks were all up and down his arm. Why should I go find him? And it was almost as if God the Father said, okay, son, I know you're having a little temper tantrum. I get it. I understand. And it was almost like he picked me up, put me on his, on his lap, pressed my head against his heart so I could hear his heartbeat. And it was like he was saying, hey, Derwin, you do know that you didn't deserve my forgiveness. You didn't deserve my love. And your sin look like heroin tracks to me. But I gave you grace, I gave you forgiveness, I gave you love, I gave you friendship so that you could be a conduit of my grace to your father. So I wrote the hardest letter I've ever had to write after I found out he was in prison. Sent him a letter, it's real short. Hey dad, I want you to know I love you, I forgive you. You have some great grandkids that you need to know and meet. Sent the letter off. Nothing came, nothing came. One day I'm out checking my mail. There's the letter. I immediately just started crying like crazy. And so I ran up to my office. I didn't want my wife and kids to see me freaking out. And I don't know what the letter's going to say. 
Like, who, how dare you? You can't forgive me. I, I don't know what it's going to say, but I had resolved two things. One is God the Father's love in Christ was enough. And number two, regardless of what he did, I would still forgive him. So I opened up the letter, and it said these words. First word was son. That made me feel good. Despite all the years of pain, that made me feel really good. And then he said, thank you for forgiving me. I do want to know my grandkids. I want to be involved in their lives. And then it finished with, I love you. And man, I just wept and I wept and I wept. And, and, and our relationship now is restored. But let me say this before I conclude, okay? And I want to talk to those of you under 30 primarily. This may apply to everybody, but for the younger ones. Your parents and my parents didn't wake up one day like, you know what? I'm going to go become an alcoholic and just screw my kid's life up. I'm going to go just have an affair with the secretary. That's what I'm going to do. You see, they have labels too. At two years old, I remember this. In the Lincoln Court housing projects on the west side, I was spending a night with my dad. Late at night, I hear this ruckus, this noise, and this violent man was cursing and throwing stuff. It was my dad's dad who came home drunk, violent, threatening to shoot and kill everybody. And I remember my dad going up to his father, gently grabbing him, taking him back to the room, and putting him in the bed. It wasn't the first time that he did that. And when I was writing my book, I was interviewing my dad. And I said, Dad, do you remember this night? And I described. He goes, how do you remember that? I said, I don't know. I got a freakish memory. I don't know. I said, Dad, but tell me this. Tell me this. Why didn't you just hit him? Why didn't you just knock him out? And I'll never forget his words. He said, because he was my father and I loved him. So who do you need to forgive? Because that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about forgiveness. We live in a world that is longing for more than us singing great songs and attending church services to go into the world to say, this is how you love, this is how you forgive, this is the way of the cross, this is the power of the resurrection. That will change the world. And you are that agent of change. Here's our soul tattoo. That's kind of what I say at Transformation Church to tie it all together. Here it is. Would you spend some time today writing God a letter and thanking him for adopting you into his family? Uh, you can use my sermon outline as a template. Um, I've done this. I've preached this message all over the country, and the response has been awesome. I, I want to encourage you to, to do that for your own growth in Christ. And if you need to text somebody, call somebody, send a letter, send an email with forgiveness, would you? Because when you forgive somebody, somebody gets set free, and that somebody's you and me. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Papa, in the matchless name of your son, Jesus, and through the sealing and filling work of the Holy Spirit, Thank you for adopting us into your family. I pray that your grace would wash over us like a, like a tsunami. Right now, I, I want to speak directly to those of you who are saying, 
Uh, Pastor Gray, I know that I am not a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you're a person that you've given up on, quote unquote, church. You've, you've, you've given up on following Jesus. And maybe this weekend was just like, I, I, I'm going to give him one more chance. Maybe right now you don't know what's happening. Maybe you experience what I experience and your, your heart is just bursting and you're going, I want to be adopted. I want a new father. I want forgiveness. I want love. I want mercy. I want a new power. I want to follow Jesus. You know, right now, if you're ready to follow Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do what the Bible does. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord, you will be rescued. You will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Saved from isolation from God. Saved to a new life to participate in God's very life amongst his people. And it's not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ and Christ alone has done. If that's you, if you're ready to receive this adopting love, the power to forgive, Jesus' very resurrection life becomes yours. If that's you right now in the silence of your heart, say this to him. Lord Jesus, I confess that you are Lord God and King. I believe with my mind and my heart, with all that was in me on that cross, you took my place. You bled and died to make me right. You bled and died to forgive me. You bled and died to show me your limitless love. You rose again to now adopt me into your family to give me a new power and a new purpose. By faith, I bow my knee and surrender to you, King Jesus. In Christ's name, amen, amen, and amen. Thank you.